Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 175 with my guest, Noah Smith. Noah is from Ohio. He went to Oberlin. Um, but Noah is a drum set player, percussionist in the steel band scene in Brooklyn. I've crossed paths with Noah for about a decade now uh, in Brooklyn over the Labor Day sort of celebrations in Brooklyn um, around the steel pan scene. And he is the drummer for another steel band. And I would always sort of tip my hat at him and um, and say hello. And we'd talk for two seconds. And I always was like, I want to reach out and hang with Noah. And I'm glad that we did it today. Um, it was nice to sort of catch up. He is always wearing a Cleveland hat. Uh, so I always feel a little like... I have another another brother here in in, in New York uh, to fight against the New England sports teams. Um, but Noah's an amazing guy. He is uh, married to another uh, excuse me another steel drummer uh, in the scene named Sparkle Deming, um, and it's just great to chat with Noah. He's a smart guy, a really good drum set player. So if you ever get a chance to to hear him play, you should certainly do it. Uh, okay, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Noah Smith. Take care. Bye that the audience is really you don't really notice the audience when you're watching it on TV so yeah. not you know not having the crowd there doesn't really yeah. make that much of a difference well one way or yeah, another but, it's odd times it's uh, very strange times to be alive of course, of course. Well, let me let's gavel this to order. Uh, Noah Smith, I appreciate you doing this. Um, you know, I we've crossed paths for approximately 10 to 15 years in Brooklyn one way or another at Panoramas. I think I started teaching at NYU 15 years ago and then started getting involved through Kendall about 10 years ago, but had sort of like wandered to Brooklyn because I had heard there was a thing happening there and when I first moved to New York. Um, And you and I would, I would sort of see you drumming and I'd cross paths and just, just a, just a, truth is that there's just not a lot of white people in the st- in the pan scene in general and when you see one and you're the only other one in the room you're sort of like wait hey <laughs> i want to know that guy and for 15 years you and i like managed to just be two ships passing in the night um but we actually share a pretty common other than the most obvious thing about us uh, we do share we both um have roots in some one way or another and i'm in ohio if i'm not mistaken yep um we both somehow managed to land in the steel band world or be exposed to that having grown up in Ohio, despite all of the, you know, all of the corn there somehow didn't somehow didn't keep out Trinidad uh, in Ohio, Northeast Ohio anyway. Um, and I just, and you're aside from all that, you're a very good drummer, drum set player and Calypso drummer. And I kind of wanted to just start today with like baby Noah and in, and I, I don't know your whole background where you grew up. So I don't want to assume you grew up in Ohio, but what, where did, how did baby Noah get to being living in Brooklyn and being a drummer for panorama bands? Okay. Um, well, like, yeah, I'm actually from Oberlin, Ohio, which is, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's just outside of Cleveland. Um, and has a, you know, it's famous for Oberlin college. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise it's a small town. I mean, like, 8,000 people, small, you know, Ohio, Midwestern city. Um, And I grew up there and, you know, that was really a blessing because Oberlin College, one, you know, it's very progressive. Mm -hmm. So being exposed to that from a young age is great um, in terms of, you know, instilling certain values in myself and 
gaining an appreciation for things that one might not be normally exposed to in the middle of Ohio. Um, you know, multicultural things. Is Oberlin, is the town of Oberlin itself a progressive town or is it the university itself that's progressive? I, I don't actually know. The university, um, yeah, the college for sure. And the town is to a large degree, especially compared to other places around it. I mean, I don't mean to throw no, no, know, no, I, other it's, cities I, under the bus, but like, yeah. you know, right now it's kind of Trump territory out there, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Uh, but Oberlin is sort of a, an oasis in the middle of all of that. It does. I mean, uh, I, it's interesting when I when you think historic, I mean, just because I, um, not just identity politics, but just liberal left-leaning politics are getting so much... Um, airplay these days on social media and in the news. And, and again, like I'm, it's great that voices are being heard, but the irony of like Oberlin being this liberal oasis or enclave in the middle of a state like Ohio, which, you know, I don't, I don't actually, I mean, Ohio voted for Obama twice. So like I, it's, it is a complicated state, but Oberlin has always been a very uber liberal area relative to Ohio, regardless of what time period you you sort of look at in Ohio history. Absolutely, and you know, going back to you know the 1800s, Oberlin was a stop on the Underground Railroad, you know, a hotbed of abolitionism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean that 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 that's just been part of the the city's identity for forever, um, and so. You know, the college, I mean, you know, there's a certain degree to which the city has that sort of liberal mindset. I mean, growing up, you know, a lot of kids are talking about those freak college students and that's just bound to happen, especially with young people in in the Midwest. Well, what, what, what brought your parents to Oberlin? Are they from there as well? Do they work there? Well, why were you in, why were you born in Oberlin? Um, Good question. Interesting question. Um, both of my parents are from Northeast Ohio. Uh, my mother is from Lorain, which is, you know, the, the, the namesake of Lorain County, which is the county that Oberlin's in. Um, and my father, he moved around a bunch, but he's from sort of like central Ohio, like Ashland around there. I think he was born in Worcester, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Um, but his father was a pilot in World War II. And then after the war, he became, um, he, he was in the Air National Guard, Ohio Air National Guard in, um, in uh, Mansfield. And, uh, and he was also a, a flight instructor. So because of that, my father at a young age was moving around a bunch. Did he ever do and any work in, at Wright-Patterson? No, I don't believe so. Uh, but I've been there a handful of times. Yeah. I used to be sort of an aviation buff as a little kid, so... Yeah. I've been to that museum several times. Did you ever did you ever like sit down and talk to your grandpa about World War Two? Of course. Of course. I'm jealous. I never know. did. I was so stupid. <laughs> right? When I mean, you're at a young age, I mean most normal young kids aren't thinking about war you know, World War Two, but right. I was a dork. Fascism so is not sad. like a sexy topic when you're eight, you know. Or right, even when right. you're sixteen, you know, it's not it may be now, but it wasn't when I was a kid. Oh, totally. And you know, when you're in third grade and you're drawing like you know, like air battles between American, you know, fighters and German fighters and, 
you know, you're drawing the insignia on them. And I'm sure the teacher is looking over my shoulder like, why is this kid drawing a swastika? I was like, no, it's just a German plane getting shot down. By like, the you Americans. don't understand. Hermann Goering was a World War II, World War One pilot hero. And he was like, he ran the Luftwaffe. Like you're explaining the entire history of World right, War II. Right. I mean, it's just like, I'm just being, you know, precocious that's specific all. or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, so I was totally into that stuff. And I used to talk to my grandfather about that. Um, he was a P-51 reconnaissance pilot Whoa. in the war. So, I mean, he was flying, like, over occupied Europe and taking photos uh, at a high altitude and things like that. Very cool stuff. But he ended up um, flying jets after the war. And um, so, long story short, my father ended up in Oberlin mm-hmm. because Oberlin also has um, a major FAA office there. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. So, my grandfather landed a job there as a air traffic controller. Oh. Um, so that's, that's how that happened. But I mean, my father was, uh, and still is, but he doesn't play anymore, but a drummer as well. Oh, okay. Uh, and so he and his brothers and several friends had a few bands, you know, in the late sixties, seventies or so. Um, and so that's where I learned. That's who taught me how to drum. My father. Um, and you know, I'm in sixth grader, you know, sixth grade, somewhere around there, you know, I decided I wanted to start playing music. Um, I was really into Green Day. Oh, you know, man. I mean, that was Trey cool. Are you kidding me? Trey Cool changed every kid's, every every boy's age, our life, who had a drum set in their basement. We were just like, whatever Trey Cool said, we did. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no questions I mean, I was, I was like 11 or 12 you know, and Green Day got big, and they're just like the perfect music for a kid who's 11 or 12. Um, and so uh, I really decided I wanted to you know, start playing music. My dad taught me how to play guitar. He taught me how to play drums. He set up his old drum set in the basement, which was like, you know, John Bonham size Ludwig drum set with 26-inch kick drums and 20-inch floor times. I mean, huge. And I'm this little kid trying to play it, you know. Uh, but he taught me the basics of drumming. And so I, I got really involved in music. Um, and I got really involved in playing punk music. Mm. And I grew up basically listening to punk bands. Um, you know, Green Day was sort of the, the first of that, if you would call them punk. You know, a lot of I don't even know. I don't even know what the proper, the proper nomenclature is for these, these buckets of music genres buckets. anymore. Yeah, yeah, these buckets of like niche niche musics. But anyway, um, so I got really into playing punk music and um, had a few bands, you know, uh, mostly as the drummer because a small town, if you're the drummer, everybody wants you in their band. Um, and, you know, because like every kid has a guitar, very few of them have a drum set. Mm-hmm. So I ended up playing a lot through that. And um, when I got to high school now, um, you know, I'm the freshman, and I'm trying to be cool and get in with the cool kids and the cool seniors. And uh, every Memorial Day in Oberlin, that's when Oberlin College has their um, graduation ceremony, and they have what's called illumination um, the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. That's like a, uh, it's like a big town and gown sort of festival in the center, town square and everything, and everyone comes out and they put up like, you know, paper lanterns to light the way, hence the name of the nation. And uh, at the end of it, um, there's there's a concert 
that gets put on on the steps of one of the um, main buildings in town. And that's where the Oberlin College steel band would play. What year would this have been? So I was a freshman, 97, 98. Okay. Um, a freshman at Oberlin High School, not Oberlin College, Oberlin High School. And I was trying, like I said, I was trying to get in cool, you know, the seniors, cool kids and stuff. And they're all saying, yeah, um, come to Illumination. You know, the CAN Consortium is playing. And I'm thinking, what the hell is the CAN Consortium? That's such a weird name. What is that? So I go to check it out. I'm like, oh, it's these steel drum things. You know, I've seen them. You know, everyone's seen them in some silly setting, you know, some ridiculous setting that doesn't really represent what it really is capable of, you know? Right. I think the first time I had seen Steel Pan was in one of the police academy movies. They go to Miami, and they're in the airport, and there's a guy playing a pan in the airport. So I think that was the first time I'd ever seen a Steel Pan. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the cool seniors and stuff are saying, yeah, come check out Steel Drum things. So I'd check it out. It was awesome. You know, I mean, I, I knew nothing about the style of music, um, but there was something about it that I really liked. And I thought it was cool. You know, I liked, I liked the beat, the rhythm of it and everything. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, I end up going to Oberlin College because I just didn't want to leave town. You know, I mean, being such a homebody, you know, I never left the state of Ohio until I was 18. You know, so like, I was just like... like you know, I not stuck, but like didn't really want to venture out too far. So I said, you know what, I'll go to Oberlin College. It's a good school. You know, a lot of great ideas, good music there. Obviously, they have a music conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that interesting. So I go to the school, and I put a. Um, they had like a you know this is the early days of the internet, uh, two thousand two thousand one, and uh, I put a little ad on their online classified saying I wanted to drum for a punk band. I wanted to start a punk band. You know, there's so many talented people, you know, at Oberlin College, you know, I started a band. And someone from the Steel Band, which at that point they had changed their name from Can Consortium to Oberlin Steel, hit me up and said, well, our drummer just graduated. We need a drummer. Mm. I'm like, oh, these guys. Yeah, let me check it out. And I went and did that and got in the band. Uh, apparently, Partly because I owned a truck at the time, and they needed someone to. You're the Lars Ulrich. You're the Lars Ulrich of the Oberlin Steel Band. Like, didn't right. they, have you ever seen my kind of, or uh, was it um, some kind of monster? Some, the, some kind of monster <laughs> years ago. Yeah, <laughs> where James Hetfield's like, the only reason we hired you, Lars, is because you owned the amps. <laughs> like oh, this oh, yeah. really like tense moment between he and James, and he's like, "You're not even a good drummer. Your dad just bought these amps, so we let you in the group. You idiot!" Like. <laughs> And you're just yeah. watching, like, oh my god, I can't believe you just said that. But I don't know. Sometimes it's true. <laughs> that that whole movie was very much an oh my god, I can't believe you just said that moment. <laughs> gosh, it's been so long since I've well, seen let me, that. Let me, anyway, let me ask you who who, who at Oberlin though, um, like you know, and, and man, my my ignorance of the Oberlin, um, uh, the history of the Oberlin steel band lineage there is something that I, you know for one reason or another i just didn't it's it's crazy to me that i can be at the university of akron and there's such a strong pan program lineage there and then you can look up that the first performance by a trinidadian steel band at avery fisher hall was accompanied with the oberlin steel orchestra in 1986 you know like Oh, wow. Like, I didn't even know that. I, I mean, I, I just looked it up the other uh, couple of weeks ago because I was talking to one of the guys in So, Jason, about like, man, you know, 
when the pandemic happened and we started just sort of being like, I don't know, fuck it. Like all of a sudden nobody can sit, you can't seat anybody closer than six feet from each other. So now we can sell out the Met Opera. Like the, we don't, we're not worried about this anymore. Like, fuck it. We should get, the, we should get the BSO and Skiffle Bunch to like team up and do something with together. And so percussion, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll do something else and we'll, we'll co-present it, you know, Carnegie Hall. And I was just like, that'd be great. I mean, who cares now? And, and, and I looked it up right. and I was like, God damn it. Oberlin and Exodus beat us to the punch like 40 years ago <laughs> at Avery Fisher uh-huh. Hall. Oh, um, I did know about that. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I have read about that. Yeah, yeah, Exodus. Anyway, it's pretty but, – but my, my question is – so but the reason I ask that is because clearly if the connection – it's not like not like Oberlin got together and like met up with the, you know, um, the Pan All-Stars from Des Moines, Iowa and, and played at Carnegie. They had a clear connection to one of the biggest bands in Trinidad. So who who yeah. had that connection or, or, or who at Oberlin was sort of driving the bus there? I have no idea because one of the things about Oberlin, the, the steel band at Oberlin College, that is unique and which is really cool and which I think, which I really love about them is that they're not faculty run at all. Mm-hmm. It's purely student run. Um, back in those days, I'm not really sure if, if you know, there was some faculty member who might have had more mm-hmm. of a, a hand in things. But during my time there, it was purely student run i mean you had like a faculty advisor just for um just you know as a technicality but i mean they're completely hands-off um and so i don't really know like who, who, who built the, who built the drums okay good question um so going back to the history of the band it was actually formed by people who went to Oberlin, who in high school had played in a steel band called calliope's children who was, that was formed by his name is Jimmy Lydon, I think. Mm-hmm. You might have heard of him. I mean, he's like an early, he's like a Carl, like a Carl Chase sort of, you know, early figure in, in steel band in America, um, outside of the Caribbean diaspora. In America. Um, so he had this little high school steel band, and several other members went to Oberlin and said, "Hey, you're here. You know, let's start playing again." And uh, I believe they're first set of instruments were built by Ellie, mm. Ellie mm-hmm. Manette. Um, and sure enough, some of those instruments were still there. I mean, this is like 1980 when they formed. And some of those instruments were still there when I joined in 2001. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which speaks to, you know, the craftsmanship of a Manette band. Um, so by the time I joined the band, they had a bunch of older pans, which were made by Ellie. Um, some of them were made by Cliff. Basically, you know, people roughly in the area at the time, you know, at the time before the internet. Yeah, I mean, one one of the reasons I ask is like, there's only really, I mean, there's there's many, many, many Trinidadian pantooners who live in the United States, but in terms of people who are making large batches of drums to to suit an entire steel band or outfit an entire steel band, at that time period, there was Cliff Alexis and DeKalb. Or mm-hmm. St. Paul, Minnesota, out out in the up you know upper upper northwest uh, part of the yeah. Midwest, and then Ellie in in Morgantown. Um, there, of course, were folks in Brooklyn. Leary Harrigan was in. I mean, there's a but Roland Harrigan. But but in terms of working at universities, those were the the two main people that sort of supplied a lot of those early programs in Oberlin. 
it's just weird that Northeast Ohio, it's like maybe because Northeast Ohio just sort of like is the river that runs between DeKalb and Morgantown. Everything just sort of ran there. The sediment sort of settled there, but it's, it's such a strange, like of all the places in the world, Northeast Ohio somehow managed to just be a net that caught a shitload of steel drums and, and steel drum education, you know? Yeah. And again, as you said, like there's a lot of it, but not as much interaction between i mean i never saw the akron band myself until i think 2004 yeah i went because i mean by by that point that was my junior year of college and i was like obsessed that was it you know when i first joined oberlin steel i was like okay this is cool but you know i i don't know i don't know because the other thing about it too because it's student run um from year to year it could be totally different yeah. You know, every year they even when it's not student run, year to year is completely different. Completely different. Right. You know? So, could you imagine when it's student run? There's very little continuity in yeah. terms of leadership. Um, and so, you know, when I first joined, in terms of repertoire and approach to the music, um, it wasn't what would eventually be what really got me hooked. You know, it was just sort of. It's sort of more of just like a party vibe, like, you know, mm. let's just hang out and drink some beers and, right. you, know, we'll, you know, drink some steel reserve because it has steel in the name and, you know, <laughs> hang out and have fun. Because irony meant more to you than quality at that point. I mean, listen, that's a very postmodern thing. Irony. <laughs> PBR being anyway. a beer that you could buy for eight bucks in a bar in Brooklyn. I'm like, oh, I know what you're paying for. Irony. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so, you know, by, by like the second or third year, of me being in the band, I got really into it. Um, partly because, you know, in they called it the pan yard, but you know, I, you know, it has commensurate with the mm-hmm. steel pan language. Called it the pan yard, but really, it's a basement in an abandoned building at the Overland campus, mm-hmm. which was very punk rock. I mean, coming from a punk rock background, I loved the sort of maverick approach to music that steel pan is. Whether it's a steel band in Trinidad or you know, this sort of hodgepodge group at Overland College, you know, fancy Overland College with, you know, all of these resources at their disposal in the musical world. And this steel band is subsisting underneath an abandoned swimming pool. I mean, literally. Yeah. Um, it is the original, so, I mean, it's the original sort of, um, I mean, punk rock. I don't, have you read this book called Our Band Can Be Your Life? Of um, course. Michael Azrad. Like it's this oh, yeah. uh, steel band, steel drums in particular are like historically a, punk reaction to oppression and you know group conformity and all of the things that that punk were i mean i'm not a punk rocker but like what little i know about it and the way strong the way song structures were formed the way the instruments were built the way you know the reason that punk rock music is you know a lot of those early like minutemen minutemen tunes were like um 45 seconds long is because they set up and could only play as long until the police came and so they right. would set up and be like, ah, enraged. And in about a minute, the cops would show up because somebody called. And then they would tear down and run. And it's like, so when you, you know, it all it all makes sense when you look at it in a larger context. In the steel sounds drum. Like a, sounds like a panorama practice in Brooklyn, doesn't it? it the police sure. show up and shut it down. <laughs> Every except, time that happens, I get like nostalgic. I'm like, oh, this reminds me of high school. Except you know? they've reacted and gone the other way. Rather than a 45-second long tune, they're like, well, we're going to do right. a 10-minute long tune. This is going to be right. a real – we're going to make you have patience here. 
Um, well, right. well, who, where was it for you? When in Oberlin for you? Like, I know for me, it, I mean, I grew up playing steel drums in high school. Like I said, with Joan Wenzel, I'm very fortunate. Um, I played at Ohio State for a couple years, and then I transferred to Akron. And the program there, Larry, it was like part of your studies. It was taken very seriously. But it wasn't really until I went to Trinidad when it finally, like, it had always been biting me in the ass. Like, hey. Hey, hey, I'm here and this is interesting and awesome. And then I went to Trinidad and I was like, oh, my first time yeah. out of, and maybe if I had been studying Geel or, you know, Geel and went to Ghana for the first time, I might have the same feeling I do about steel drums. But that moment imprinted on me in a way that like trauma does for people, like where you can't, like no matter what you do, you like if you've been in a car wreck, you can't turn left without having right. terrifying anxiety, you know? And so, but for, for me in a good way, I, I just can't go through my world without seeing everything in the context of that moment as a 19 year old kid in Trinidad. So for you, what, what was that that sort of started to turn your, your eyes towards like taking this a little bit more seriously? Yeah. So in, in the aforementioned pan yard, if you will, um, like buried underneath, you know, all the crap they had sitting around in there were a couple of CDs, uh, of steel pen music from Trinidad. And like part of practice and working on a rep, I mean, granted, like they, they played songs like Kennedy Minor and mm-hmm. The Hammer and things like that, but there wasn't there wasn't as much of an effort to get everyone interested in where those songs come from, what they mean, um, the context of them, things like that. So and I'm, I mean like for, you know, we're playing like Kennedy Minor verse and chorus, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this song is cool, whatever. And then I come across the CD in the Panyards, the old bands of Trinidad and Tobago. And it's a Sanch um, recording. Um, Sanch is the company that records a really big panorama orchestra in Trinidad. And uh, so I took it home and I listened to it. Was it Ice Records? Is that the, the label? No, I think that one was on Delos. Oh, yeah, Delos. Okay. Yeah, Delos yeah, and Ice they, were like the two. Like Ray Funk wrote all of the liner notes for Ice Records, yeah, and like that's yeah. why I heard my uh, like you buy all those steel band is beautiful competition rec- recordings mm-hmm. are on Ice. Like those are amazing. Ray Funk is a legend, by yeah. the way. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I popped the CD in because the first song on it is this little boogie sharp, you know, simple song called Sunset. I mean, it's just like a just one of those songs Bugsy would just like throw out while he was playing and probably forget it because mm. that, that's just kind of the mind book that he has, you know, just like music flows from it. So I listened to that. I'm like, okay, sunset, this is how you're really supposed to play it all. You know, and I'm listening to the drummer too. I'm really paying attention to the drummer. I'm like, Oh, that's the group the drummer is doing. Okay. I'll remember that for when we play it. When over the still plays it, the next track was. And so I see the next track is pan in a minor by Amico Renegades. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, why does it say it's 9 minutes and 54 seconds? <laughs> like, ours is only two, uh, two, two uh, and a yeah, half minutes our, long. What the hell? Exactly. So I put it in, and I'm just like, whoa! You know, because, first of all, I mean, we're talking about 120 players or 100 players or whatever. And it's just like, I don't know. I mean, you know how it is. I don't know about the people you know who listen to your podcast or are familiar with uh, steel orchestras and how they sound, but there's something really visceral to it, uh, even on a recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I put that in, and I was just blown away. I was like, this is awesome. You know, there's so much going on, and 
And again, I'm listening to the drummer in as much as you could pick out the drummer amongst a hundred players. And I, you know, he's doing this and he's changing to like, like a rock backbeat where he's bashing on the cymbal and stuff. And I, that sort of spoke to me. Um, and so from then on, I was hooked. You know, I, you know, I, I started seeking out more and more steel band music and reading about Panorama, the competition, uh, and really got into it. So fast forward a couple of years, and I organized to go to Brooklyn, take part in the Panorama competition mm. here uh, in 2004. Um, and that was it. As you say, that was the moment, you know, where you take that left turn and you always, you always, it's always there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I played with, um, actually played with two bands that summer, uh, just because I wanted to experience, mm -hmm. you know, the different styles and so on. I played with two bands, Pantonic, um, whose arranger at the time was Clive Bradley. I feel really fortunate to have been able to play with five people. <laughs> That's hilarious to me, dude, that your first time playing with a band in Brooklyn was with one of the most legendary Trinidadian arrangers of all time. Yeah, I mean, I figured, like, go for it. Go yeah. for it, you know? And so I, you know, played for Bradley, and then I also played for Sonatas, um, because my another friend from Oberlin who lived in New York, you know, we both, both sort of decided, like, we're going to go to New York and play for Panorama, um, but I really wanted to go play for Bradley. So I, I went on that path. My friend, he just sort of, as he says, it sort of like randomly picked a name out of the phone book and he ended up at Sonata's. And I was like, yeah, I'll play there too. Um, because I really liked the music. The arranger there was a guy named Johan Popwell. And that was his first year arranging in New York for Sonata's. And we won. Pantonic incidentally came second to last. That was like the worst they ever did with Bradley. That was a, that was an off year of off years. <laughs> so between the two bands, I pretty much came, you know, you want to average it out. Um, so, then, so the following winter, which would be January of 2005, I went to Trinidad. Um, that was my first time playing at Trinidad. I played for um, Renegades, mm -hmm. legit. So, you know, I was really like, I was aiming high to play with all these people. Now, mind you, I wasn't playing drum set. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a noob. I, I'm still too shitty on drum set to really hack it on, you know, on, a, on the panorama stage. I was playing scratcher. I was like, you know what? Any way to get into a rhythm section and to see how it works and to like be exposed to it firsthand, be mm -hmm. part of that, um, be part of that living organism that is the engine room of the steel orchestra. So I was like, you know, I'll just infiltrate with a little scratcher, get in there and feel it and just sort of pay attention, soap out what the drummer is doing and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's what I did in, in Trinidad that year. And after that, I mean, forget it. It was a wrap. I mean, the thing was in my blood. And as, as a lot of people will say, like, it, it just, it gets in your blood like, like, like a disease that doesn't like it. I guess that's really it. Anything these days, but, I mean, uh, I, I understand. Uh, I know what you're saying. No, I mean, I know what you're saying, but I, I mean, uh, to me, I, I would take it even a step further to 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 um, agree with you that it, it gets in you in your like you said in your blood, and but in a way that I, for me personally, I just I don't know. 
I don't know whether it's that it's a relatively new art form, historically speaking, just in terms of the way history works. Like, the violin's just been around for way longer. And so right. your my ability to understand the sort of um, the roots of where the violin came from as a folk instrument you know, um, and the types of foods that you would have, would have been associated with the violin and the music that was played within the woods with bands of people traveling, like, no, like these are instruments that have roots somewhere. Right. And now we see them in the context of the Concertgebouw or Cleveland orchestra or whatever. And they're like, look at these things and you can study. And this one is a Stradivarius and it's worth $18 million. And you're like, that's fantastic. What did the black plague smell like whenever, that right. instrument was being made, you know, like those are interesting things too. The steel drum, I think is just so new that we, we just, I mean, not that it hasn't, isn't happening, but it's almost impossible to detach it from everything else, which is the music, which is the, the, not just the steel band, but the soca music. You go to Trinidad, everybody's car windows are rolled down and the latest socas are all bumping out. And it's the same five tunes. You cannot go to Trinidad and participate in Panorama and not walk out of that country singing one of those five tunes on repeat in your head. You can't go to a pan yard, even in Brooklyn, hardly, without somehow having corn soup forced down your throat. Um, You can't rehearse in a steel band without being forced at the end, and when I say forced, I mean in a good way, to say a group prayer with each other. You know, like, so you have religion, and it's like, not everybody there's Christian. Right, like there's Hindus, there's Muslims, there's Jews, like they're all, and there's atheists, like agnostics, they're all in there, and you know what? They're all saying the prayer. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. me, I, there, there's something that you know, I've, I've told my bandmates this, and so that I think one of the like right now, if I had to have a choice, somebody said you have to choose one musical community to be a part of for the rest of your life, and it's the pan community or the new music community with so. I mean, it's not even close. Right. I mean, and not that I don't love Steve Reich or John Cage or any of that. I mean, I, not that I don't think the the stuff that so does isn't important. It's just when you talk about a community, there's something inherently built into the steel band that it's not without complications. It's not without politics. It's not without all the other shit. Totally. But it's woven in a way that you can't kick someone out of the team because they disagreed with you on politics or they disagreed with you on the way a phrase should be played or they disagreed with you on the type of hot sauce you use on your food. Like, no, you take it all. There's problems, but, and to me, that's very attractive. And I've always, every time I walk into a pan yard, whether it be in Trinidad or Brooklyn, I'm like, this is the year I'm going to be convinced that I'm wrong. And God uh-huh. damn it. Every year. I'm just like, fuck. <laughs> like, and I, and I, I just don't feel that way when I walk into PASIC. In Indianapolis, yeah. you know, when I go to like a, um, you know, a big chamber music concert or something, I love what's happening. I clearly do chamber music for a living, but why can no one in this room tell me why I don't feel as comfortable and safe and healthy in this room as I do when I'm in a pan yard? Hmm. Answer that question for me. And maybe, yeah, listen, I got my own personal bullshit, so I'm, I'm, I'm projecting some of that onto the situation, but I'll stand by it to a certain degree as it pertains to the steel band and what you can gain from it in terms of a worldview, in terms of learning how to work with large amounts of people <laughs> very quickly. Oh, yeah. uh, and then to the, the hot button thing. I mean, we've joked a little bit, I've joked a little bit about you and I being a minority in the scene, but 
right, right now, I think if 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 pe- if white people want to understand what it feels like to be on the other side of the coin, go to a pan yard. Mm-hmm. Not because you'll feel terrible or because you'll anybody will look at you strange in a bad way, but just you need to be in a room where you're the one, you're two of the one hundred and forty. Yeah, that's crucial. It's really crucial, and I'm really fortunate to have had it from when I was like nineteen. Like Larry Snyder right. and Bugsy and Cliff were like, "Go do this. If you don't, you're a fool." And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just haven't had that. And that's you know, and I I don't know. That's I don't have a question here. That was just it's just an observation I've I've been making. That's a good observation to make. I mean, growing up, again, I've always you know been very progressive. My parents my parents raised me right. You know, I'll just say it like that. Um, and especially when it comes to matters of race, mm-hmm. you know, racism and. Uh, things like that um but still i mean it, you know when, when you are one like the only or one of two um in a in a situation like that it's it's kind of a shock at first but as you say it's an, it's an important thing to do it's definitely important um and you know like you i i did that early relatively early yeah. at the age of 20 to 21 or so and um I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything to say to it either. I, I don't either. I just. I, I've had enough conversations with you know friends and family members, coworkers who talk about like you know they talk about not not just co- just the the you know, the tenor of the conversation is like it's so easy to fix all of this. It's so easy just to be like be an anti-racist. I'm like, okay, have you ever been in a pan yard when four cops walk in and walk right by you? And go to the right. line of double tenor players who are all 13 years old. And I'm the guy with a bag full of weed, probably like <laughs> that's right at my feet. You know, like yeah. that's that's systemic racism. And I want you to know that it's not as easy to topple it as you think it is. When they walk in that room, if I as the only white guy in the room all of a sudden start like throwing my, myself on the grenade and making a big deal out of it. I've done that. And it's awkward and weird. And it, I don't know. Like, it's just not as simple. And I, I just like, you need to, you need to be in the yard when this happens. You need to see, you need to understand that cops will walk right by me <laughs> just because of the color of my skin. That's it. I remember a long time ago being at a yard, um, with a couple of my friends, because every summer, you know, a bunch of my, not a bunch, but a handful of my friends from Oberlin who I played with, mm-hmm. they'll come and play in whatever band I'm in. So that's been a tradition. So one summer, and I mean like 2005 or 2006, you know, three or four of us, we were just after practice or practice didn't happen for whatever reason. So we just drove around Brooklyn, checked out other bands. And we were at one yard and these NYPD guys came up and they looked at us. They're like, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, this yard is in Canarsie or somewhere like over, you know, over by the terminal market. And, uh, cops are like what are you guys doing here you're looking for drugs get the hell out of here like nah dude like clearly there's something cool going on check out the music right in front of you like i i don't know it, it's a it's a weird thing but yeah, yeah i mean I, I i i i just again yeah man i didn't have a question there so i'm not expecting you to have an answer um it's just it's one it's something i think right now that i i you know it's even more acutely I'm more acutely aware of it given the pandemic and the inability for us all safely to get together and do a panel even when it's raining and the judges you know 
that a couple of years ago when we had to do panorama outside the stage, right. you know, it's like even in those right. years where it's just chaos and everybody thinks we shouldn't do it ever again. And I'm going to boycott next year. Even in those terrible down years, I'm still now in this year where we're not even allowed. I just am like, Oh man, I'd give my left oh, yeah. left leg to have that drama right now. Um, totally. Because like, yeah, Yesterday, I'm sitting here after that storm blew through, you know, the tropical storm remnants, and it got nice out afterwards. And I'm thinking, like, man, if Panorama was on, I'd be going to practice right now. You know, like, I'd be sitting here watching the storm, you know, sort of peter out, not really amount to anything. I'd say, man, I guess practice is on. Like, that's the kind of mindset you get into this time of year, and it's weird to not have it, yeah. uh, to have that happening. But, well, let me ask you... Um, <laughs> Just to change gears a little bit here, um, yeah. what, when you drum for Panorama, um, you know, I, I was talking with, I did a podcast. I'm really close with Jerry, obviously, and, and right. you know that. Um, but I, I, it's interesting to talk to him about his approach to Panorama drumming. Um, I'm curious for you, when you're sitting down to drum with a band, where, what do you feel? And I'm sort of asking, a, I, I'm asking a question to which I suspect I know the answer. But like, what for you are the biggest? like boxes you are going to check like you number one you need to learn like what are the low pans hitting what are the high pan like for you what are the boxes you're looking for when you sit down back there that you feel are going to best help the band and the arrangers music do what you think they need it to do got you um the answer could kind of differ from arranger to arranger because some of them are more hands-off in terms of the drumming or some know exactly what they want. They themselves might be a drummer or some of them um, know what they want, but don't know how to express it. So I'm sort of like stuck trying to figure it out. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but I guess what I'm referring to with each of those. Um, The boxes I check one, obviously learning the song, like bulletproof inside and out. Um, Because when you're in the rhythm section, as I'm sure, you know, very often you can't hear shit. <laughs> you hear all white you noise. Hear, it's just you... you hear you hear the rhythm section. That's uh-huh. all you hear. So you don't really have a, a frame of reference of what's going on in the song, which um, makes it really difficult. You have to you have to internalize the music, especially as the drummer, because as the drummer, and this is the next box that I would check. Um, you're sort of responsible. You shouldn't be, but you are responsible for everyone else in the rhythm section knowing what to do. Um, again that differs from band to band I mean when I played at Renegades back in the day from the drummer to the scratcher to the tambourine to the Iron Man they knew that song like Mm. inside and out but since then I've been in and played in more bands where you know you're drumming and you have to turn around and say hey 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 you know yell at the guys to get their attention to let them know there's a stop coming up or a crescendo or a phrase, you know, a set of drops or whatever. Um, so you kind of have to be a team leader in that sense. Um, you're like you know, the catcher on a baseball field. I mean, everybody's got to know how many outs there are. Even if they all know, you're still going to say it. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Um, and that's that's a pain in the ass because when you're drumming, I mean, drumming is very physical. And, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is, you know, lifting one hand to get people's attention or turning around to yell. You know, you want to play your part. You want to do your little fill or set up that stop or set up the phrase yeah. that you're cueing those guys into to begin with. Um, 
that's another box to check. Um, playing as loud as humanly possible, um, you know, making sure you're heard, um, that's one challenge with drumming when there's 100 or 120 other people also playing some form of percussion. Um, Do you tune your drums differently uh, with panorama drumming in order to sort of help you project and come through? You know, that's, that's something that I'm still experimenting with. Um, I think part of that is because I haven't had a good baseline with which to work because, you know, from band to band, you know, there's a lot of variety in terms of drum set. I've had to do a lot of drum set surgery in pan yards. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in New York, you know, being able to use my own kit or whatever, I generally, I try to, I like to have the kick drum be thumpy. Um, but that's because that's how I've always played it. I, like, I don't like to tinker with the kick drum tension a lot because, you know, if it's too high, then to me it just feels messed up. Um, but the toms, you know, tune them a little higher because obviously they need to project. And the snare um, often is just prank the shit out of it. You know, right before the point that starts to choke out. But I can't claim to be any sort of it's an, I've asked Jaran, I pick his brain a bunch too, but it's it's interesting just the sonic quality of a steel band. When you step back 10, 15 feet from the band, everything just because of the nature of acoustics, like everything sort of gets compressed into this mid range, like you know, low mid low to mid and then or low mid and uh-huh. then high mid and everything's in there and you you really have to have mics placed in order to hear proper amplification for the bass because the bass sounds are so diffuse. In order to hear the drums at all, you got to have mics back there. But Jerion cranks his drums and his snare and all of his toms way up, uh-huh. and his kick drum way down low to sort of like right. bookend the sound of you know the sound of the band because otherwise uh-huh. you're just in that chaos and nothing comes through. You know, if your snare drum is oh, tuned yeah. in the middle range and it's getting swallowed up by the double seconds, you know, it doesn't matter what you do there. It doesn't matter what line you're trying to accent or point out. Um, you're just getting buried by default. And especially toms. I mean, if the toms are too low, forget it. Like, you're, the cellos are going to eat you up. You know, and a lot of a lot of it is too, you know, you want to sort of accentuate the attack. Um, you need that sort of high register attack of everything to just sort of cut through a little more. Um, but again, I can't profess to be an expert. I mean, this is, it's still something that I still experiment with. If I was in the pan yard tonight, I'd be messing with my tuning, trying to get it right. That's just, I mean, Jerry on, you know, he'll play several bands in a season, so I think I've just really developed a good, uh, good temper. Yeah. Well, let me ask, um, what advice just to sort of, you know, we're coming up on, we're about 50 minutes in here and I don't want to take too much more of your time, but like what, what advice would you have for some, let's say there's a, there's a, there's a baby um, Noah right now growing up in a cornfield in Oberlin and, or in some other, let's say, you know, Wyoming and feels like they have an interest in doing something like you're doing. You know, they see you drumming, right? I mean, the difference between you and me and them now is that, like, they now have YouTube videos of you and Jerry on and everybody else playing with steel bands. I didn't have that. There's I, the first right. person I ever saw drumming with a steel band was in Trinidad in person. Like, was it Killer? Um, the drummer because you were at Phase Two. I was in Phase right? Two, two thousand two. Two. Oh, two thousand two. Do what you want. I don't. Do what you want. Was it Bailey? Richard Bailey? 
and I older know, older guy. That guy's a boss. It was an older guy, I believe. Uh, and the the main sort of uh, iron guy is a guy named Mikey. Um, that's who oh, I knew okay. there mostly, but oh, that um, but like you know you couldn't you couldn't yeah. be like what's it like to play a soca tune and like look Google, look it up on YouTube and now they can so. There's right. just a little bit more access and information for folks. So if there's a young, you know, young student out there, who, or maybe even a college student, who's like, "Man, I see what Noah's doing. How, I want to do that." Mm-hmm. What would you suggest be the first email they send in order to, or the first recording they check out, the first sort of thing they do to to get on that journey? I know, I know oh, that like, man. you know, your journey is a pinball sort of butterfly effect of a million different influences, but. Right. There is a point at which somebody has to take the step in their own hands and make a make a phone call or send an email. What would you recommend for somebody who wants to learn more about this stuff? Oh boy, that's tough. I mean, I, I mean, for me, and again, this kind of doesn't apply because, as you say, people have so many resources. But even so, I mean, listen to a lot of the music. For me, it really, I think, helped to listen to like. Panini Minor, Renegades Panini Minor, mm-hmm. and sit there and listen really hard to figure out what the drummer is doing. And then, you know, a year later, realize, oh shit, that's a drummer and a timbales player. <laughs> and the timbales player is taking a lot of the shots. And oh wow, the drummer also is the guy just playing a side tom. So, I guess, like, you know, if you can find videos on YouTube, that's a great thing to do. I mean, obviously, a lot of drummers are much more accessible now. Mm-hmm. Um, of social media last week um Ardell Lewis uh of um Snarky Puppy he also drummed in Panorama in yeah. Toronto for Pan Fantasy and he did a video um on his Facebook talking about his experience um I mean things like that the fact that things like that exist is pretty amazing yeah. um but to me it, and I think it's kind of cliche at this point with any musician but listen 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 I don't think that's cliche at all. I think that's just like, I don't know. Like what advice do you have for somebody to keep their teeth clean? I don't know. Something on a regular daily basis. What recommendation do you have, Noah? I don't know. Brush your teeth. Right. (laughs) Every morning, brush your teeth. Like that's cliched advice too, Noah, but it's really fucking good advice. (laughs) It's cliche because it's true. Right. Cliches are called cliches for a reason. There's, there's a whole shitload of truth in there. Um, I mean, I would say things I wish I had done. Mm. I wish I had focused more on proper technique. Mm. You know, growing up um, as a punk drummer, you know, you sort of eschew technique, technicality, things like that. And, you know, I've developed bad habits as a drummer. Well, you can't, um, you can't really rage against the you can't rage against the machine and then be like, "Can you show me how to properly do it? properly rage against the machine?" Right. <laughs> but I mean, even like holding a drumstick properly you know mm. i i grew up holding a drumstick like you know like like with the with the butt inside my palm mm-hmm. yeah obviously you're supposed to hold it further down and once i learned that and i started practicing with that more it opened up a lot a lot more doors just in terms of dynamics and things like that um you know just i think especially playing in a, in a big steel orchestra like this proper technique is very important. I think proper technique comes natural to um, some drummers, to some like myself, not necessarily. So I've had to work on it, but it helps in terms of reducing fatigue. I mean, oh God, you're practicing five hours a night. Excuse me, five hours a night every night. You know, you you, you want to 
learn how to minimize the amount of effort you put out. You're not just rehearsing. You're not. You're not playing like. The, your soft snare drum roll for five hours a night. You're you're bent, you're hitting as hard as you can for five hours a night. Right. You're, you're going. You're going at you know at a hundred, and then all of a sudden someone hits the side of the pan, and you have to go from a hundred to zero like that, and then go from zero to a hundred again, all night long. You know, it, it's a and as you know, being a driller, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy sort of regimen. So you know, it's something. Think, it's you know, something as a driller I have to be very careful of because I you know, you have the person working the hardest is the drummer, physically speaking. Yes. Maybe second to that is like a bass player in terms of like the amount of real estate somebody has to cover when playing. Mm -hmm. Those two instruments Mm -hmm. are, are just moving, doing the most physical activity. And so, yeah, it's like you have to pace that out because if you're doing something that requires Jerry on or you to just like rage for 30 seconds at like at your peak RPM. And I'm just like, no, let's just loop that. Let's just rehearse that over and over and over again for two and a half hours. Like I'm going to burn you out and then I'm going to actually ruin everything for the rest of the week. Like so it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. I mean, how how open are you know, as a young student, I was afraid to ask to shadow people. Like, let's say I wanted to become a soca drummer and my dr- my life's dream was to drum for a panorama steel band. Um, mm-hmm. My advice to that student would be to be like, all right, go stand behind one. Right. You know, like, so how open would you be or would a steel band be to like a random total stranger contacting you and saying, no, I'd like to work with you or just shadow you just to know what this is like. What What, what does that look like for somebody? It looks like nothing right now. <laughs> Let's say it, so in 2021, hard. hopefully, theoretically right. speaking, in 2021, what does this look yeah. like for somebody? Um, I mean, that's totally cool, though. Honestly, I'd probably just tell them, man, I'm still a noob. Go talk to Jerry on. Go talk to Gregory. <laughs> Hit up Leeson, you know, Foster, one of those guys, like the real bosses. I'm, I'm still, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm a, a kid from Ohio doing it, but. You know, I, I would totally defer to a Jerry on because, to be honest, I'm still doing that shit myself. You know, I go to Panorama, I still stand behind Jerry on and watch him, or stand behind Leeson or Killer, any of these guys who I look up to on the regular. You know, yeah. Um, a couple years ago, um, well, I played for Desperate USA in, in Panorama up here, and we go with two drummers, which is awesome i love it i love playing with another drummer never done it before in any setting which i'm sure you have uh, i've never it, drummed with two drum. i mean never never a drum set like i've never bit played drum set along with somebody else in that context it's awesome i highly recommend it especially for panorama because one you know obviously you can sort of dial it down a little bit you don't have to go at 100 because now it's 200 percent between the two of you you know um but when you lock in with another drummer, because the way we do it, you know, there's two approaches you could take. Either you could basically clone each other or you could do something complimentary, like, you know, one drummer just kind of keeps the beat and the other one does all the flashy stuff on top, which is an approach that the bands take. But uh, at Desper's, it's myself and this guy, Gregory, who is like a legend of just drumming in general in Trinidad. They call him Animal, or at least they used to. Um, I, I don't really hear that anymore, but that was his nickname for a long time. But he's just a boss. And I learned so much drumming with him. Um, you know, there was one part where it was like a run. 
and then a couple of um, hits. And uh, get to the hits. They're like quarter note hits, like dun, 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 that sort of thing. And we get to the hits, and I'm like, man, why is, why is Gregory pulling back? Like, why is he pulling back the tempo so much? And I realized he wasn't pulling back shit. I was pushing ahead naturally every time we got to that. The quarter notes, they kind of want to jump forward. Mm. I'm speaking about quarter notes in cut time, not... Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have, you know, you sort of want to, like, push forward with that. So he was keeping me in line. And, like, that right there was a good learning experience. But being able to just in general, like, sink in with him and play the same thing as him and get that sort of connection and that back and forth with mm-hmm. someone who I've looked up to as a drummer for years. That was awesome. That was better than four years of college. Yeah, I mean, I think if I, I every time Jaran comes to town, I try to, um, I mean, when we can teach in person, have students of mine who are playing the panorama at NYU or playing right. the kit. I'm just like, you got to just sit, just sit in the room with Jaran. Like, I don't, I'm not going to, you just need to know what it feels like to play with somebody like him. Just listen. And I don't, don't listen to like his, like, like any of the, like, I don't his, what I'm not impressed with Jerry on by is his fast hands. What I'm impressed by is the depth of sound and his, and his unwavering quest to just keep the beat. So forgettably solid, Mm -hmm. like that. You don't even notice he's there. And like those two things, if Jerion had one arm and one foot, I would still probably hear the same intention and thus I wouldn't need more. Like, cause at the top of his list is like energy and sound, mm-hmm. like, and the, t- like energy and time and the sound he's bringing, the quality, like the depth of sound he's bringing. And in Skiffle Bunch this year, there's a kid, there's a guy named Shaquille who's a bad ass drummer, Shaquille Forbes. Uh, mm-hmm. Mainly a seconds player within Skiffle. He plays lead as well, but monster seconds player. And he sat in and played drums this past year. And he, well, and, and Shaquille is like a like a pipe cleaner. He's like super tiny, like super skinny, and but super good. He gets back there, and about an hour into the five hour rehearsal, I look back and and Shaquille just is like prone, like flat out laying on the ground. Like I can't, I can't keep up with him. Like. <laughs> There's only a certain like Jerion. There's just a sound he gets that it's. It, I think it was clear to Shaquille's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll get there. I just not this year, <laughs> and like I'm gonna have to adjust in order to be able to hang with Jerion. And it was real. It taught me a lot. Like to watch, you know, and Shaquille could play circles around me, but to watch him, like it taught. I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly how I'd feel. I'm going to learn by watching you go through this torture, <laughs> what I would go through if I was sitting back there. But I, but I think like, I think as a student, if you have an interest to play in a panorama steel band, there are very few places in the world where you can know exactly what that's like. Trinidad is one. Brooklyn is one. London is one. Toronto is one. Miami is one. And small islands as well. Oh, wait, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm talking about like in terms of where where oh, outside of the Caribbean. Outside of the, outside of the Caribbean, those are the yeah. big. Of course, I mean, of course, like the Virgin Islands, all the way down. Every island, to some degree, has some connection or or does relate to it in some way. But in terms of like where there's a carnival and a anywhere from a sixty to one hundred and forty piece steel band congregating in a parking lot, those five or six places I listed are sort of like within your reach. Right, but there's not many York, others. You have to go there, you know. You got to go there. And New York, New York is great. Uh, Brooklyn is great for it. Even though obviously, 
um, steel pan here faces many, many challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, first and foremost being real estate. Um, Brooklyn is awesome because there's such an attitude to it. You know, I've been, I played in Panorama in Trinidad. I played here in Brooklyn, obviously. I played in St. Lucia. Uh, and each one has its own sort of vibe to it in Brooklyn's. Um, it just has a different attitude. What I like about Brooklyn also is it's very much um, a melting pot of cultures mm-hmm. across the Caribbean for the most right. part. Um, so, so it's not like Haitian, Dominican, have, Barbados, Grenada, Jamaican, like it's all over the map. Guyana. Right. Guyana, right. yeah. But I mean, obviously Trinidad sort of dominates because that's what it's modeled on. And right. that's what much of Lyapka in general is based on Trinidad Carnival. Um, but I do like how multicultural it is, Caribbean speaking, uh, or speaking in terms of Caribbean. Um, but it's also really accessible. You know, I mean, anyone can walk into a pan yard in Brooklyn and just listen to a band. And people don't understand that because a steel band is such a social thing. It's such a community thing that, you know, like take for instance, Desperate USA. Um, one of, I think the only band now left in Crown Heights, I mean, it used to be Crown Heights had Desperate, Sonata's, Harmony, um, and now it's just Desperate alone. And, um, our pandyard is situated right next to a, a hipster bar, for lack of a better word. Um, I mean, people will walk by the yard while we're practicing, like, they're like, what the fuck is it? Like, wide-eyed. They, they're just blown away. And generally, like, some old-timers just in the yard rhyming and drinking will say, hey, come on in, come on in, come on in. And they'll come in and, like, feel like they've entered Narnia, like they've entered the secret <laughs> world. Yeah. Which it is. I mean, it come is, on. Yeah. When you're in the middle of a big city, you don't expect to just walk by a vacant lot and see something like that. Uh, and it, to me, it's it's really gratifying to see that, just to see someone from who might know nothing about this just be welcomed in, walk in, walk to the bar, buy a Corona for $5, sit there, listen to the music, and then go on their way. I think that's great. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And, you know... Brooklyn is really unique for that. Um, one of one of the millions of things that makes New York City unique, and I hope can continue, um, is, is that sort of thing. Well, I, I saw. I think it was Jelani. Um, posted something on uh, Facebook that it was just like a pile of money and it was like if you found this outside of a bank what would you do or, or something you know and like would you return it and I was just like and it was, it was something like a hundred million dollars and I just said like well I would figure out how much it costs I would figure out every steel band in Brooklyn and New Jersey and Philadelphia figure out what it would cost to buy their pan yards outright and I would just do that and then the rest of it I would you know I'd buy a car or a boat or whatever. Like I do all the selfish things that we all want to do with, you know, if we had a hundred million dollars, but the first thing I would do is alleviate the real estate crunch for all these pan yards because, you know, there's their gentrification is one thing. Um, but there's also the sort of, um, it's interesting, you know, anybody named Karen, I feel terrible for these days, but, but there's been a phenomenon of people calling uh, for, for, uh, 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 noise complaints oh, yeah. calling these steel bands and it's like if you can call and you can convince that the whoever is renting it is being a nuisance you know you're renting to these bands and it's a nuisance to the neighborhood it's like well 
I'm sorry, if Cassim owned that lot, yeah, you'd have to deal with noise, uh, noise complaints, but Cassim is the landlord, not uh-huh. me, you know, some, or not uh-huh. somebody else. And yeah, sure, we'll figure it out. We'll shut down by 3-4-10, but this is our yard. You know, right. like, I feel like a little bit of ownership in terms of advocacy, like to me, that's like if I had a billion dollars, I didn't know what to do with where Jeff Bezos was like, all right, you can have 3 billion. What do you just do whatever you want with it? I'd be like, first order business is get these bands real estate because Absolutely. virtual, virtual zoom steel bands are awesome. They're fun. I, we're all trying to figure it out. The panorama J on zoom is amazing. All of that is totally rad, but if we don't figure that out, then the gentrification thing is next and that's going to blow it all. I mean, so for you, just to wrap up, what to, for you, I mean, cause you live in Brooklyn um, mm-hmm. and you're, mo- you're more involved with the pan scene, just objectively speaking than I am on a daily basis. What do you, on, on the ground, what do you see as like, I just listed what I felt was an important thing. What do you see as like, if you had a hundred million dollars, Noah Smith, what would you do with it? The same thing you just said. I would buy everybody their own piece of land to to practice in. I would take care of my band first, naturally. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Because we're all suffering. Everybody is suffering. doesn't matter if you're 15 people or 150. Yeah. Everyone's struggling in a steel band. You know, you can't just go to Sweatbox or Sweatshop um, Rehearsal Studio in Greenpoint or uh, Bushwick. <laughs> You know, for panorama practice, that's not going to work. You know, um, well, because the truth, all joking aside, the truth is a lot of these bands do year. I mean, stage side stuff is year round, and a lot of them have right. educational you know programs they run. So it's not just panyards so that we can rehearse panorama, which is like the big runway show of the year. But there's a million yeah. other things that go on that service the community and students on a yearly basis. And 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 it's a great asset to the community. It's. I just wish people recognized, and by, by people, I mean the Karens you speak of and so forth, uh, or as I call them, the Kathleen's in Desper's case. Yeah, I know. I wish um, poor, I, I generally, I, I genuinely feel bad for anyone. I mean, I, uh, poor Kathleen. I mean, well, not poor, poor, not poor Kathleen. I know of the Kathleen of which you speak, but, you know, Karen's got a bad rap. I, I, yeah, <laughs> hard, hard for the Karens. Hard, hard but, time um, to be a Karen. <laughs> but, um. It, you know, it, it serves such a such a great service to the community. Just free musical education for kids. You know, free team building, learning how to work with others, as you say. It, 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 I don't know. If there's just so much about Steel Band that that makes you want to love it, I can't see how someone other than the noise would want to complain to the police all the time. And you know, to those who are bothered by the noise, well. I hope they enjoyed all the fireworks we had for the past two months straight. So. <laughs> it is listen. Uh, I think we're we're getting into the territory of like any example we have is like the only other response is irrational. Sort of like, I, dude, twenty twenty has been insane. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we can complain about noise, but I saw some videos mm-hmm. of like Crown Heights that looked like Fallujah, Iraq, um, with just like like. <laughs> People running around with Roman candles, shooting them at each shooting other. Shooting each like, other. For, it was crazy. For months. I'm like, for like, I'm like two it, months. I'm like, I'm like, am I, am I now like, like paying for all those nights that I've been the noisy one in the neighborhood? Yeah. You know, you know, people hearing my snare drum four blocks away, like. There, yeah, it, it does put some things in perspective. You do have a little bit like the, the moments when I was you know here. Um, 
you know, I live in Connecticut. It's not like the the fireworks have been bad here, but they they're mostly like the occasional like oh, poosh, like somebody just launches off right, a, right. a big M80 or whatever. And I'm here. I'm just so indignant. I'm like, oh, it's 9 p.m. How dare they, my dogs? <laughs> Meanwhile, any other normal year, I'm in Brooklyn. Like, there's apartment buildings right here, and I'm just like, louder, louder. Right, 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 right. <laughs> this is culture. <laughs> so well, you know, I have hypocrisies too, but I I think they're worth it. Well, I'd say a steel band is a bit more constructive than randomly blowing shit up. I stand know? by that. I agree with you 100. percent Just for the record, I want that to be clear. I do. All right. <laughs> As long as we're clear. <laughs> well, no, I think this is a good time Good time to put a button on this. Um, cool. I appreciate your time, and I know we went back and forth a bit about I, I felt like I had to sell you on, on coming on Zoom here, but I'm glad we did it. Um, Not at all. I, I mean, Zoom, is, oh, Zoom is for work. It's for work, you know, so I guess it's sort of – it has that stink to it. But this is great. Well, I, I'm, I'm grateful to have gotten to speak with you. I mean, the the odd thing I will say, if you want to look at the silver lining here, is like I we've crossed paths for let's say at minimum a decade, and maybe uh-huh. said two minutes worth of material to you. And thanks to the yeah. pandemic and to Zoom, here we are, an hour and ten minutes in, Noah. So, were it not for the pandemic and for Zoom, you and I may not have connected on this 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 intensive a level. So, I'm grateful. Yeah, instead I would just be seeing you at Panorama and saying, go tribe, and taking our <laughs> annual picture together. Our whatever, annual, you know? like, go, go Cleveland sports, <laughs> and yeah. then we'll just go our separate ways. Well, no longer, Noah. We don't have to do that anymore. We can do cool, them both. Man. We can do all of it. But, well, right. tell, tell, thank you for your time. Is there any place where um, folks could look up more about what you're doing, and, and, and does Despers have a Facebook page where folks can see what they're, what they're up to? Uh, I think... Desper's Facebook page is Desper's US Steel, I think is the name of it. Okay. And then, um, well, you know, I only work with them in the summers. I have a stage side, which is actually a new band. We haven't dropped our identity yet, so that's okay. still kind of in the ether. Fair enough. Uh, well, maybe we can come back to... on whenever you guys are officially in the world. For sure, for sure. Our plan was to actually drop it at the concert we were supposed to do together in May, but... Yes. Thanks, COVID. We will but, um, listen. I I have put a pin in that. It's not going anywhere. The minute we're back in lot in person, we are going to pretend it's 2019 and or 2020, and it's going to be. We'll make it happen. Don't you worry. I am committing to you right now here that we're going to blow the roof off a low low theater at NYU. Good. I'll tell Mark. Um. Whenever we uh, whenever it's safe to. I don't want to get. I it, listen. I love Mark Mark Brooks's music as much as the next person. I don't love it enough to put anybody in harm's way. So oh, yeah. what and I don't even think Mark does. Well, maybe Mark loves his music enough, but I would, I, I, whenever we can do it, it's going to be, it'll be well worth it actually. So awesome. Well, tell, tell, tell sparkle. I said, hello. I, we, I don't, I don't know her as well as I'd like to, but pass on a hello for me. And, um, I've really enjoyed this. Noah, thank you for your time. For sure, man. I will. I'll do that. All right. Take it easy, buddy. Later. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that chat. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com. Check them out. Hilarious percussion videos. Uh, great content. You won't regret it. Also, uh, Liquid, or excuse me, Kyle Dunleavy. Dunleavypans.com. D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Down in Philadelphia, Kyle makes and builds all the, the steel drums I uh, teach on and perform on and so percussion. And uh, he's an amazing guy. Reliable nice and a really good tuner um so check him out dunleavypans.com 
Also, if you are into steel drums at all uh, and advocacy and education, check out paninmotion.com. They're an organization based in Brooklyn. A bunch of my good friends run this advocacy organization. paninmotion.com. Check them out. Finally, uh, if you like steel pan-related merch and you just want awesome-looking shirts to wear around to support the cause and support a Brooklyn-based business, check out Aliandri Mirage's company called Mango Chow Clothing. You can look him up and his work on man- uh, mangochowclothing.com. I have a bunch of his shirts, and they are super comfortable and beautifully beautiful-looking, so uh, check him out, mangochowclothing.com. All right, hope you're all doing well, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.